I'm Mallory Wyckoff. This is In the Waves. Friends, welcome to episode five of In the Waves podcast. In today's episode, we have a conversation centered on chapter five from my book, God Is. The chapter is titled, God Is and Is Not. And in this episode, you will hear me describe why I felt it was essential to put this chapter between kind of the two parts of this book. In the first few chapters, I offer this autobiographical and historical and theological foundation for how we ended up with such truncated and narrowed ways of thinking about the divine, namely through um, the, the, the virtual soul use of masculine language and images and metaphors and how that experience of keeping God small aligned with my own experiences of staying small. And then in the second part of the book, I offer this collection of distinctly feminine metaphors and and images and language for the divine as a way of kind of expanding, of taking up more space, both for ourselves, but also allowing God to, to do the same. And I wanted to put this chapter, God is and is not, between these two sections as a way of kind of pausing, one to just name why I felt it essential to to write this book, some of the reasons behind it, why it's essential that we engage the divine through various metaphors, what we're missing out on when we don't and the implications of that. But I also wanted to name this caution that anytime we are moving from something to another, it's really easy to have a kind of pendulum swing that says, well, I reject what was, and now I totally embrace this new thing. And sometimes that might be essential. That might be the proper thing to do. But in this case, I wanted to make it clear here in this chapter that I'm not naming that everything that we have ever been told about God is necessarily untrue, and that everything that I'm saying is wholly true. There are some untrue things that we have heard and that we ought to reject, and there are some new and expansive things I think we ought to accept and embrace and move forward in. And it's essential to name that ultimately, anytime we are talking about the divine, we are still in the realm of mystery. We are still in, the, still in the realm of what is ultimately ineffable. And so we're using, as we talked about in our prior episode, uh, Goddess Communicator, that we're still engaging metaphor. We're still engaging simile. We're still engaging symbolic language. And so everything we say about God both is and is not, right? So God is mother and also God is not mother. God is she and God is not she. God is he and God is not he. Because metaphors and symbols are both like and unlike that which they point to. Reality is always more than our language, our symbols can contain. And even our language itself is merely a symbol. Uh, And so why I wanted to bring on Meredith Miller for this episode today is because she's doing such incredible work 
helping parents and caregivers and grownups think about how they can nurture a healthy sense of spirituality within their kids, even and especially as their own sense of faith continues to evolve. And so if we're going to do that well, as you'll hear in our conversation, that requires this awareness of and this um, embrace of mystery and nuance and complexity allows for time, it allows for space. And really, this is what her work is highlighting so well. So in this episode, you're going to hear us talk about um, some of her really incredible and practical ideas for how to show up well for our kids as we're seeking to, again, help them foster this really life-giving spirituality. Um, and as parents are seeking to do that for themselves, but also for for their families, we talk about some of the frameworks that we have inherited and why those frameworks around faith and parenting really need to be interrogated and dismantled. And Meredith offers this beautiful glimpse of what a different and more life-giving framework can look like. She also concludes the episode with a lovely blessing to all parents and caregivers that is uh, certain to be a gift to you as it was to me. If you are not familiar with Meredith Miller, check her out on Instagram at Meredith Ann Miller. She's got 20 years of experience in children's ministry and curriculum. She served for five years as the children in the children's ministry at Willow Creek in Chicago, which is one of the largest and most influential churches in the United States and even in the world. Since 2007, she's been involved with the Fuller Youth Institute. She holds an MDiv from Fuller Seminary, as well as a BA in Religious Studies and Spanish Language and Literature from Westmont College. And I'm really excited that her upcoming book titled Woven, Nurturing a Faith Your Kids Don't Have to Heal From will be released in August of this year. So be sure to check that out. You can pre-order that wherever you buy books. Again, find her at Instagram, Meredith Ann Miller. I am certain that you will find this conversation to be both inspiring and also deeply practical. Enjoy. Meredith, thank you so much for being with me here today. I've been looking forward to this conversation and delighted for folks to get to hear from and learn from you, uh, thinking about uh, not just folks are are engaging this information for themselves, right? They're they're connecting with it, but also if they are parents or they uh, work with little ones in any capacity, then likely they're also processing it through that lens as well and how they show up for those little ones in their lives. So I'm delighted for folks to get to hear from and learn from you. Firstly, I would love just to ask, what are some of the shapes that faith has taken in your life thus far? I am a born and bred church kid who had like a great experience of that. And so one of my earliest is like faith is this community that's super fun and loves really well. Um, It's this place where you realize that God's love must be real because it animates like all the people that love you best and are the Mm. most delightful to be with. Um, So that's my like earliest version. And when I look at time going on from there, a lot of my own faith story has been, can you trust that maybe God really is as gracious as we claim? Maybe God really is as kind as we claim. And I think that's been big is this idea that a lot of what has worked against faith in my story has been people who put a lot of limits on God because some sort of rules make them think that that's what you're supposed to do. And the more you come back to, but maybe this person is not the way we've represented them to be. 
I think that's created a lot of freedom and a lot more um, confidence, I think, in just the trustworthiness of God. It's it's interesting to me that as you name that your earliest experiences of faith were actually really positive ones, because mm-hmm. I think for a lot of folks, the assumption can be, you know, I'm, I'm coming out of this place of, of trauma and church trauma and religious trauma. And, and there may be elements of that in your story as well, but, um, and that, that, that it's that energy that compels folks into an evolving faith or a sense of deconstruction. Certainly sometimes that's the case. And also it, it, it can also be true that it was a really beautiful experience mm-hmm. on the whole, right? There were positive elements that we really want to carry forward and the container is, is too small in some ways, or there's pieces that even as we want to bring some elements forward, we want to leave some behind as well. So I'm curious along those lines, and you, you spent over five years leading children's ministry for one of the largest churches in the United States. And, and in many ways, one of the most influential what are some of the parts of that work and particularly your work in children's ministry that you decided to bring forward with you once you left? What are the parts that you decided to leave behind? Yeah. Um, what I don't think people expect if they know that I worked at Willow Creek was that that was the place that most solidified a lot of the good things that I continue to advocate for now. Uh, Mega church stereotypes are such that it is a bit unexpected. And I would say that church-wide, mainly as long as kids were happy, upper leadership didn't care what we did. Mm. And so um, our whole team really worked hard on revamping the way we were approaching our content for our kids. And that meant focusing every single story we told on an attribute of God. Mm. And it meant getting rid of all prescribed application. And so that was probably the most radical thing for especially a large church context to take on, especially because that meant um, sort of killing our own horse, that Willow had been the ones to first advocate that the way to make faith concrete for kids was to give them like a defined point of application that they could take into their week and implement pretty quickly that... Um, Their small group leader could check in on in the future and how that go and what happened. And so they created that original formula that was about know what, what do we hope a kid learns? So what, how does it matter for their life? Now what, what will we tell them they should go do as a next step? Hmm. And that was like the model for decades. And it was the team who had been there to write that stuff, publish that stuff, sell that stuff. They were the first ones to say, it's got to go. Hmm. And then I came on the team in the midst of that. And the biggest shift was what's one true thing about who God is in the story? How can we help kids discover that? And what kind of space could we create for them to respond to this attribute, including saying they're not so sure that's true, that God being that has not matched their experience. How could we bring caring adults in where any response is okay? Both the positive of saying, yeah, I've seen God be caring or with me. And kids can say, I don't feel like God is with me. And someone's there to say, yeah, that is okay. And that is hard. And we do experience that not to try and like correct or fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a full paradigm shift. And that approach of let's start by exploring a story, looking for something true about who God is. And then let's give kids space to respond to that, including saying they're not so sure that's true yet. That's the biggest thing I feel like I want to keep. And the thing I want to 
have more and more adults feel like they're comfortable, confident that they can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I want to leave behind is we still had to do a lot of entertaining. So there was a lot of competing with whatever is the it thing in the culture and you just can't win. You cannot keep up with every single YouTubers, whateverness in the hopes that that's what makes things relevant for kids. Mm -hmm. And I don't actually think kids need that from us in a faith space. The relevance comes because we have these questions about real things in our life and kids have them too. They just sound different because they're kids, but they're real. And when you say, I've got a story to tell you that helps connect the dots, that's what's relevant. Um, and so I'm not sad to not have to chase every single like young person's trend anymore. And I don't mind leaving that behind both in church myself and for my kids. I also don't mind leaving behind how long we talked. Right. And so you have an hour and 15 minute service, maybe more or less, you never totally know. And so when you've got a hundred something kids in a room, the way you do crowd management is to put a person on stage to try and sort of keep them drawn in. And that just means too many words, too much talking head. Even if you're trying your best for it to be participatory and engaging and fun, it's too long. I want to leave behind how long we made these things go because I think we diminish how much real engagement a young person can have within their genuine attention span instead of being like sort of pushed. Um, And so we, you know, we ask them to do this 50 minute hour long thing, but if they're eight, They've probably got like 15 good minutes in them at the most, but a lot can happen in those 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're not giving them credit for that. So those are probably my big two. The entertaining and the length got to go. But the big one I want to keep is let's tell stories looking for who God is, first of all, and give more space to respond instead of telling them what to do next. You said that one of the things that your team was already starting to resist and then you you came on and, and were part of thinking through that a bit more was this idea of prescribed application. Yeah. I imagine for a lot of folks they do not know a way outside of that option that has been inherent to every <laughs> every way childhood all the way through adulthood that they have engaged faith and spirituality and their understandings of god it always moves to that step and and sometimes this message is is a bit more covert or implicit and sometimes it's it's quite explicit and overt right but it's like if we don't do that, then what's the point, right? Everything must lead to that. Yeah. Can you say more about what that shift was like? What were some of the, mm-hmm. the challenges or the resistance that you you sensed from folks? And, and why did that feel so essential to be willing to leave behind the move to a forced application? Oh, yeah. There was so much about that that was tricky. And so the biggest point of resistance was from um, longstanding volunteers who had been with kids because of two things, I think. One, when you prescribe application, it lets them know as a volunteer how to follow up. Like they know what to emphasize to encourage the kid to do that thing. And then they know what to follow up on and see how that thing went. So when you take away that prescribed application and it becomes a lot less concrete, I think that they didn't know how to imagine that as caring adults, they're mainly going to journey with these children, but they're not going to be moving point to point from action step to action step. Mm -hmm. And that's just squishier. I think the other place they found resistance was the part of them that had always practiced faith in really similar ways. That the whole point is that because it's lived out, that must mean that this is how we equip ourselves and children to live it out. Mm -hmm. 
And that one was easier to shift together over time with practice because what you found when you took it away was not that kids were just like, well, that was a neat story. Thanks. Instead, you replaced telling them how they would go forth with questions like, what do you think God might have for you tomorrow? Or when's a time that you needed to know that God was this attribute that we were bringing to light? What was happening for you? So they heard more stories from more facets of life. The other big thing that happened when we shifted was that we could be more effective in connecting with more kids from more diverse backgrounds. Mm. Because there's something about the privilege of having the resource to go forth and do that prescribed application that really needed to be interrogated. Mm. And when we were in suburban Chicago, which meant especially our second service where people had enough time to make the drive, you've got everyone from like a very large geographic area coming on in at a variety of places, right? So their families are in various states of connection and disconnection and their income levels are wide ranging and their support systems are wide ranging. And so when you tell kids like, go be courageous, you have no idea what they're scared of right now. Like Mm -hmm. you have no idea what's happening in their family that's scary. You're just saying be courageous. But when you say God is with you, which both are true things you can take from say uh, Joshua and Jericho, of like the encouragement Joshua gives the people is the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The beginning of the sentence is be strong and courageous. Mm -hmm. So we can go tell them to be strong and courageous, or we can say God's with us when we face big, scary things. What is happening right now that feels big and scary where you need to know God's with you. Every kid can answer that big or small. And every answer is a good answer from a kid. Whatever is true for them is true for them. The more people see that, And I think probably the more we all practice that for ourselves, like if this is who God is, where do I need to see that come to life? Where do I need to tell the truth that I don't experience it, but we're afraid God's going to be mad at us if we tell the truth. I don't think that's the case. Right. And um, so that was super helpful. And all of that stemmed honestly from a a batch of research related to the teenagers that um, Christian Smith had studied at Notre Dame. It was kind of this landmark thing in the space of ministry that served young people where they all talked a lot about having a faith that was super moralistic. Mm. Like they know how to be good kids. They know what's on the list of do's and don'ts. And it really didn't matter if they were youth group kids who had done Protestant Christian church life, or if they were from a variety of other faith traditions, young people fundamentally thought religion was about being good. And I think that becomes exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I think that as we were looking at our youngest kids, we were like setting them up for that from the jump with this prescribed application. We were just telling them that all those things were the things that you put on the list and then that your faith forever and always would be about managing that list. And that's exhausting because hmm. we already know we have data on how this style plays out. It doesn't hold up 10 years down the road. I think many of um, my age folks, mid-aged folks were raised on the same prescribed application children's church stuff. And now we're the adults who also can testify to how it doesn't work, how it's just put lists in our mind, how it's, created our own sense of exhaustion about managing those do's and don't lists and creates a whole lot of either shame because we don't think we're doing it or disillusionment because it feels like God isn't holding up their end of the bargain for all this list management work we're doing. Yeah. And as part of that, I'm thinking about what it is, what it, that mode is telling kids about how sacred text um, work. Yes. (laughs) Right. Because if you are, if this is about how do we apply this, 
there are a few stories and a few texts that can work really nicely for that on the surface at least, right? But there's so much of it that will never get to that point that you just, yep. <laughs> right? Even the most seasoned <laughs> children's children's minister is just going to go, I, there's nothing I can do with this, right? And so it's it it that's necessarily going to call into question then the way that we even approach text, the assumptions we have about how it works, what our engagement is. And I love this this shift because it, it if folks are thinking, well, if we don't move to this clear point of application, then it means that that our faith might just be an intellectual exercise, right? Or it's just something that we're discussing or or belief points, but actually doesn't issue into some sort of action. But actually what you described, is this beautiful example of the types of formation that's taking place that does not follow one model, right? It, it allows for the type of diversity that is expressed in the children there in that room, the diversity of God, which is part of this larger conversation that we're having, right? The diversity right. inherent in God. And to say, there are numerous expressions of how the ways that we are being informed by the story, by the divine can come forward, can issue forward in our individual lives, whether we're, you know, driving in from a really safe neighborhood or, or we're not. Uh, so I love, I love all of these larger she- theological shifts that take place, even with what seems like a minor shift, you know, yeah. in how you structure, structure your approach. Absolutely. It ripples into mm-hmm. all these other ways. And to your point, it becomes more of a formational journey. This idea that I'm getting to know a being and determining if they're trustworthy and seeing if that would animate my life in such a way that would be life-giving and Mm -hmm. sustainable and joyful. And I mean, and then you start getting into something that sounds a lot like the fruit of the spirit, (laughs) (laughs) but that idea that you're creating the space, first of all, by saying, well, it would start by not worrying so much about what we do and spending more time being curious about what this story says about the God that it speaks to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that helps a ton. So you spent this time in formal children's ministry. And then since then, part of your work has kind of shifted towards really creating resources for parents who are experiencing their own processes of deconstruction and reconstruction and this evolving faith who are wanting to attend to that process well and with integrity and are doing so as they're actively parenting kids and kids at different ages and and with different sensibilities, right? And in different contexts. So as you come alongside and seek to partner and with and and companion these parents, what are some of the things that you encourage them to, to do or to be mindful of? What are some of the things that you really encourage them to avoid or to shift in a different way? I think the first encouragement I always want to give is there's more time than it sometimes feels like there is. I think the part where we parent in real time and we see our kids growing in front of our eyes or we're if we're the family around a young person and we're not wanting to be a bad influence because our friends have entrusted us to be, you know, part of their own children's lives, whatever the relationship is, it can create a sense of urgency and then we rush. Mm. And I think that a big part of it is that there's time. I think any God worth their salt to relate to would be empathetic and compassionate about why we need to revisit um, all of the questions that we carry. And there's just something to slowing down that I think serves both our own stories and any kids that are in our orbit. You're modeling the idea that we don't need to freak out when we've got 
complex things in front of us. Um, that's like, okay, yeah, this is. This is hard or heavy or confusing. And we, we can sit with that. I think the other thing to consider as an adult would be, is there anything true I can start with? Because the tension often comes in feeling like we've got to sort out all of it. So not only do we feel like there's a timeline now where we got to get hurried up, but what has to happen in that rushed amount of time is a very long list of things that we think has to get sorted and settled. And just so because what we were told about passing on the faith, so to speak, is that I have it, I give it to my kid, like um, a piece of jewelry or some other family heirloom, that it's an intact thing given one generation to the next. And because of that, we get worried that we've got to have answers to lots of things, that we've got to understand the whole of scripture, and it just feels very big. I don't know that that idea, the metaphor of it passing on sort of like an object or an heirloom is a very helpful image as compared to I'm telling you stories of communities and we're part of this community. And in this community, there have always been people who are totally not sure and people who are real mad and people who are working stuff out. And so we get to be regular people in this community that are exploring this thing together. And so then it also lets us kind of focus on just a few true things to start with our kids. Like, are there a couple things that you can hold on to? Um, I have a family member who, for a long season now, the only thing they can comfortably play with their 10-year-old is Psalm 23. Mm. It's the only one. And everything else just really pisses them off. Mm. Great. Just pray Psalm 23. There's a lot there. That can get you a real long way. Mm. (laughs) And so it can be smaller pick the thing you can do, right? And I think there's a lot of worrying about what we're not doing well or right because, oh, because of so many things. <laughs> That's probably. I'm sensing into how I, I even physically respond to your reminder that there is time. I don't feel it so much when it comes to parenting my girls or seeking to nurture this faith sensibility for them, but probably in every other area of my life, <laughs> there's that timeline. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so that means it probably shows up here. I just noticed it less, but yeah, even just that reminder that, uh, as, as you know, the poet Mary Oliver says, things take the time they take Yeah, just that the exhale that that induces for me is so beautiful. And mm-hmm. you're right. It's very different than the, than the pressurized way, even that, that I was given to, to think about this. And I continue to want to, to resist and allow for the time that this needs to take. Um, you, okay. So you gave some beautiful examples of things to uh, what to do, anything that you would add mm-hmm. to that to say, Hey, maybe let's leave this behind or, or avoid this. The biggest one is to, I would say really take a a bit to interrogate the things you think you should be doing because someone told you that's what Christian families do. Mm. And we probably have various degrees that any of us are aware of those pressures or those models. But overall, this is a space that has worked on a one size fits all formula for a very long time. And so if we've been in sort of church family parenting spaces we probably have some sensibility about like, you should be doing these things for your kid. And so then we spend a lot of energy sort of trying to hack that system and get ourselves to do it right. The most common example is probably the idea of the family devotion. 
like it just got ro- risen up, raised up, lifted up, what, you know, <laughs> to be the preeminent practice mm. that you would have this dinner time devotion. And so then it's really convenient because you can sell a lot of devotional books to these families who have to have devotions, <laughs> which is my cynical side. And yet I think that's actually a real thing. Mm. A lot of kids aren't at their best at dinner. They're tired and they're drained because their days are hard and take a lot of their energy. A lot of kids do not have the attention span that this model has asked of us. You know, it's it works like a quiet time of half an hour conversation. Lots of kids don't do half an hour. And yet I am so often asked by these very same adults we've been talking about. This is their story. This is what they're working out. And then they circle back to say, do you have any recommendations for like a good devotional that like isn't going to be harmful and is going to be kind about who God is and will present lots of images for who God, but they're still holding on to their assumption that they have to do the devotional. Mm. And it's like, before you worry about finding the one that sets that tone, which is a beautiful tone to be seeking, maybe you avoid the devotional entirely. If it's going to be a fight, if you're exhausted, if your kids aren't curious about these things, if they're not verbal and they're artistic or they're more of a mover, that first place of let's avoid the one size fits all formula. And start with who are my kids Mm. and whom I, who is our family. There's so many practices, both formal and informal, and so many practices that come from the longstanding faith tradition and so many you can make up (laughs) for the very first time. And so I think that's the first thing we just have to keep shaking off is that once I get my faith more settled, of course I will start practicing devotions and nightly prayer rituals and whatever the things are on the list that we've sort of been told, you know, that not doing them is a big old deal. And there's just so much pressure around that. Not only from a soul care perspective, but also just from a research perspective, there is no need for any family to fit any particular formula when it comes to growing like a healthy and robust relationship to the divine over time. I love that this conversation keeps coming back to this emphasis on diversity and allowing for more than one options and, and diversity in numerous ways. But like you said, who, who are your kids and, and what are they interested in and, and how do they take up space in this world? And what a different starting point than something that is external to you, to them, to your family that somebody somewhere formulated, right. And said, you need, you need to do it this way. And, and that they hold some sense of uh, external authority there. What a different starting point to begin internally within yourself and then within your kids and your family. Um, that isn't an isolated conversation, right? We're still ultimately doing this in community with others. I mean, even this conversation, I think would be part of that, that larger kind of communal work, but that takes seriously the particulars of your family and your situation and what life looks like for you and honors that and allows for that. And and it seems to me so that that approach is so reflective of how the divine actually engages with us as human beings, right? To enter into the particulars of our embodiment, of our context, right? Of the time in history in which we show up in the world, right? And I I talk about that in in chapter four, this idea of of God as communicator and the ways that God enters into human reality and and seems perfectly fine with with doing that. Doesn't seem to hold any of the fears that we often hold about about doing some of that. So I just, I really love the way that it honors and allows for and makes space for the more 
uh, in in numerous ways, numerous expressions of a family, of God, of faith, and yeah. and so on. Yeah. I'm also thinking about this this quote from a uh, Sikh activist um, Valerie Carr. And, and it's, I won't get it exactly right, but it's something to the extent of, you know, for a lot of folks have this image of faith being like this boulder that was passed to them. And like you, you described, it's this fixed intact thing that was, and is now, and will be the same forevermore. Amen. Right. And it's <laughs> your job to carry it forward in that way. And in her own Sikh faith, she says, actually, I think it's much more like this river, right? And it it came before me and it will keep going long after me, right? I, I didn't start this thing and I won't be at the end of it, but I get to enter into it and I get to see what are the parts of this that I go, actually, these parts were really unhealthy. We, we kind of missed the mark here, right? And we want to divert some of that away. What are the parts that we want to increase the flow in certain areas and say, there's a lot of life and beauty here, but we get to be part of that construction. What a beautiful invitation for people who take their faith seriously, whatever it may look like, but also to imagine a family doing that work, you know, as a, as a family unit, that's a, that's a really life-giving invitation that allows for a lot of possibility. Yeah, it really does. Notably, the idea that your kids get to be children in the mm. midst of it, mm-hmm. because part of what comes to mind as you describe that boulder idea is often that kids can't lift it, but parents think they have to start handing it off. And we've got this adult version of faith that we think is better than a kid's version of faith. And they don't get to actually just be children in that. We're always pushing them to move ahead towards something that we've somehow elevated to be. And when you describe God as communicator, not only is that time, place, culture, context, but it's also, I mean, for those of us who would say that Christ is an embodiment of God, Christ is a kid Mm. and childhood gets honored through God going through all of childhood. Yes. And not choosing only adulthood. Mm -hmm. And um, it doesn't seem to be in any rush about that either. And so there's, it's both the particulars of your family and just honoring childhood as a whole, of like being a kid who relates and is getting to know God, like that is its own thing that God does not seem in a rush to get our young people into some sort of adult version of faith that is somehow more legitimate. Yeah. So I imagine that in your work then, both as a parent now, as one who provides resources for parents, and then also your work in in children's ministry, that metaphors for the divine, images for God, right, ways that we understand, visualize who God is, that that was part of how uh, some of the things that you you have thought of and are actively thinking of now. Um, and, and as I write in, in God Is, that one of the reasons that I wrote this book was for my daughters. And because I wanted them, if only in, through this book, certainly it will be more, but right. But if only in this book that they would have a space where they hear God in a way that matches their embodiment, right? Mm-hmm. So that they can um, hear those expressions in, because so many other spaces, that's not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. And as research indicates that by age two and a half, that children begin to intuit and internalize God language and images and, and metaphors. So tell me about your work helping to expand the metaphors that we use to convey God to these little ones. Yeah, it's... Probably one of the newer pieces, I think, because um, when you work for a church, you're bound for good and ill to the community's understanding and their own comfort levels. Mm. 
with what metaphors get most uh, recognized and are most sort of celebrated as being representative of God. And so it really has only been in the last few years when I'm not sort of beholden, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but to a community that I don't lead, you know? And so it's been fun to see how that has played out with our groups of kids, even just um, within the church that I pastor. One thing that has been particularly delightful is to play around a lot with pronouns because kids will always notice. They're Mm -hmm. so used to the fact that the world defaults to masculine pronouns that when you stop as you're exploring a story and you use a singular they or you use a she, it'll catch them. And because they're children, they'll be like, wait a minute. And so you, you get so many more moments to overtly say, God is not a boy. Mm-hmm. Because anytime you decide to pick a pronoun and keep jumping around, it's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And that's just a simple language shift that has been so much fun because the more it happens, the more kids become sort of excited by that as opposed to uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I know God's not a boy. That they begin to just take on that idea that like one of their starting points is whatever else I learn about the nature of God, I'm not confined to only masculine things mm-hmm. um, exclusively. I think that one of the wonderful things about the metaphors for God in the Bible that are feminine is how easy they are to draw, right? A mother hen is fun to draw. And if you have, we live in uh, Southern California. So a lot of our neighbors have chickens. Mm-hmm. Chickens are really easy to find and watch and they're adorable and they're so fun. And so there's something really neat about how much you can invite kids into art. And so going all the way back to shifting how we might approach scripture. If we tell a story where God has chosen to describe themselves in mothering ways, and then you give a kid a blank piece of paper and you say, I want you to draw your favorite part. And then we just put on some music and we go quiet and we stop coaching and deciding and talking and yammering. Inevitably, kids end up in softer spaces Hmm. than the warrior, than even the shepherd is a relatively, you know, because David's version of a shepherd is I fought a lion and I fought a bear and, and that was what was necessary in the time. So that part has been a lot of fun. And there's a lot more that's coming through imagery as opposed to words, which I think is also just always a good shift. And I'm a high word person. <laughs> you probably got that already. Like, I love the world of words so much. And my older son is an artist mm. who loves characters and animating. And we'll see way more about God when you give him a blank piece of paper and say, so draw with me as we explore this story. That, that's some of what I've been noticing so far. I love, I love the image of the blank piece of paper for a number of reasons, but one, I'm thinking about a lot of parents in particular, right? If, if they begin to loosen their grip on certain ways of thinking how they have to parent, right? It might feel like, well, then I have nothing to offer here, right? You've taken everything away. And so even for them, it might feel like this blank piece of paper. Um, there's nothing you, I had all these words, I had all these systems and structures and it's gone now. Instead, that you give this beautiful example of uh, where there are pieces here, like, okay, here's a story. Here's a text. Here's an image. That's something for us to explore here. And there's so much room for, is you named your son or any child, right? To access what already is within them. If we actually believe 
that spirit indwells human beings, then she's at work within them in that moment. And I get to partner in my parenting and language that I may use to describe. I get to partner my parenting in the way that I embody that expression of that mother hen, right? And it's not all on me to do that, right? Spirit is moving in them and the way that they could then express that on that, that piece of paper might also have something to teach me, right? Yes. That it's not just me coming into this moment as some as some expert, as if that was was even an option. Right. Absolutely. We were exploring the Christmas story uh, a month ago, my kids. And one of the questions I have taken to asking over the last year or so is when we finish a story, I usually stop and say, so what do you notice about who God is or what God's like? And I've probably picked one, something that I've maybe highlighted more in the way I've paraphrased it for them, but I try to limit it to just one and then let this question sort of fill in the rest. And one of the kids in that conversation says, babyish. I think some adults would knee jerk as that being disrespectful to call God babyish. And then you say, okay, tell me more about that. It's like, they notice that God didn't choose to be a grown up. Because they live in the world without the power of a grown-up, without the influence of a grown-up. And that idea of God as baby was so interesting to them and very much not the like, let me tell you all about theology of the incarnation or whatever these sort of things are that we think are the essentials to the Christmas story. When you open it up, they find other important things Mm. in stories about what God's like. And babyish was neither about like, that wasn't about God being a baby boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That was just babyish. What does babyish mean? Yeah. I love that. So part of the structure for our conversation here is chapter five mm-hmm. in my book. And it's titled the, the chapter is titled God is, and is not. Mm-hmm. And, and as I've, I've shared with you, it felt like I needed this pause between these two kind of parts and, you know, um, it, you won't even look in the table of contents is not going to say part one and two, but that's kind of how I felt about them. That really part one was kind of chapter one through four, where I'm laying this a bit of a theological and historical and autobiographical framework. Right. And then the, the remaining chapters, it's offering this, uh, selection of, um, feminine metaphors and images and language for the divine to help expand the ways that folks engage God and themselves. And so I start with kind of naming, Hey, here's some of the factors in my own life and, and in our world that have, have kept God small. And so now let's, let's bust that door wide open and access the more of, of God. But I felt like I needed to take this pause in this chapter to say that I'm not doing a swap here to say that, you know, we, we once talked about that, that God is he, and now we're just going to say God is she and assume that that's sufficient. Right. Um, I'm going to talk about God as, as she, and realize that we're in the realm of metaphor here. We're in the realm of language, which is necessarily symbolic. Even the words that we use are symbols pointing to some reality. They help us access it, but never fully, right? There's always reality even beyond the language that we we use and certainly reality beyond uh, something like a, a metaphor. And so God is like a, a midwife or a mother or a seamstress and also not, right? God is he and also not he, right? This feels like a really essential, felt like a really essential place to just kind of pause and, and name that so that it doesn't feel like it's shifting from one fundamentalism to another. Yes. 
And the reason why I wanted to name that here in our conversation is because that happens for a lot of folks. I feel like if they're rejecting particularly some form of kind of conservative fundamentalism, and then they're moving into their own deconstructive processes and seeking to then parent with their kids, that sometimes it can just be a pendulum shift where it's I actually, you know, I, even if I begin to move into healthier, more life-giving spaces, I can actually then sink back into a new form of, of fundamentalism. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I just begin to idolize and concretize the new and assume that, well, now I've got it. Right. And I find that to be so un, unhelpful. So what I'd love to explore with you is how can we both as adults, but also if, if our listeners are, are parents and they're, or, or caregivers or teachers, right. Working with these, these little ones, how, as we continue to move through our our experiences and our processes of our faith sensibilities to continue to allow for mystery, to allow for complexity, for nuance that isn't just that pendulum shift. Mm. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I would agree that that temptation to sort of just shift is, is real. And um, my first thought is, almost a precursor probably to us unpacking this a little bit more in conversation together. But if you're the adult of a young person, that, that research about young people thinking faith is a list keeping exercise is still relevant. Even if the faith that they hold is not a conservatively marked one. Mm -hmm. So there's a version of a young person and the lists that they believe mark their faith are simply that a good person does justice Mm -hmm. and shows up in protest spaces and advocates. Those are wonderful things that young people need the chance to practice doing. But you can see how they would begin to believe that being a person of compassion and justice is what they have to do. Mm -hmm. And that if on their don't list, they sometimes choose to be selfish or consumeristic, or they don't recycle something, <laughs> like they just would have a different list around different values. But list management is detrimental to all of us. And we don't want to give that to our children, whatever's on the lists. Mm -hmm. And so before we even begin to say, how might we represent a more mysterious and complex divine to our kids, it I think can be really helpful to stop and be mindful that we are also wanting to fundamentally reject that this whole endeavor is about getting our lists right. That's if right. we can just push that aside entirely, I think that helps a lot because we don't always notice how much that becomes the framework. Um, we just think that as long as the values are better than the ones we had before. Mm. Um, so I do think that helps animate this like, okay, let's explore something different then if we're not trying to populate the lists just right. Mm -hmm. And so if a parent was to hear you say, hey, that's not what we're after, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's one list or another, and they were to say, so then what is this? How would yeah. you respond? What is this about? This is like the way a spider weaves a web where she attaches an anchor thread to a point that seems secure. And then she flies off. And she'll find something else eventually to attach to. And then she'll fly off again. And eventually each anchor thread will provide strength and support. And then she'll get to weaving something on the inside of her web that is going to be uniquely textured and rich and entirely 
custom to her. Spiderwebs are like snowflakes. No two are actually the same. Mm. And perhaps what we are anchoring to is the many metaphors, images, adjectives for God. That that's what we find. God is this, and God is this, and God is this. And the internal stuff might be the things we thought were most important if we were raised in certain systems, the practices. You should read your Bible X amount of time. You should journal in just this way. You should follow these prayer formulas. That's all internal threads. Those aren't the anchoring points. The thing that excites us as we look for new metaphors and new images and more nuance is that anything we discover there, that serves an anchoring place for us. The identity that we get to continue to discover because God choose to, chooses to be knowable and, and revealing and engaged. And so it's like a web. And when a spider's web loses threads and they break, they just mend that one part. It doesn't all fall apart. They don't reconstruct the entire darn thing. It doesn't mean, oh my gosh, I failed as a spider. <laughs> of course, things break. Mm. When we learn something new, it's not that different from the way that two anchor points provide needed tension for one another. I thought God was love. I thought God was love. What's with all these violent stories? What does justice do to provide needed tension to love, especially in my context, um, as someone who comes from a place with a fair amount of privilege as a white affluent person? When communities of color talk about the justice of God and the way the justice of God is a reflection of the love of God, that is adding much needed tension in dynamics on this web of faith that I'm trying to weave that would be anchored most of all, not to certain practices and religious formulas and particular expressions, but to this God who is continually showing that they're even more than we ever imagined. Mm. And so discovering something new doesn't become scary. It becomes a great addition. And discovering something new becomes the most important part of all of it, not adhering to the formulas and the practices. Those are just internal. Those can flex, those can break, those get to look however we want. My preference would be just to sit quietly for several moments just with that image because it's so beautiful. So listener, pause here. <laughs> just be quiet <laughs> for a moment because there was a lot to allow to sink in there. Um, in, in the final chapter of my book, I include a list of names for God that I've just collected mm -hmm. over time. It's one of my, one yes. of my practices and, yes. and one of them I have in there is, um, the luminous web holding all things together. And I was holding that in mind as you're describing this, this image of the, of the spider web, and even that being held in something larger and the beautiful interplay there. Thank you for that. Yeah. I would love to conclude our conversation by giving you a space to name a word of blessing and encouragement to listeners who are in spaces, whether in their homes or in schools or in medical facilities or churches, whatever it may be, where they have some sort of influence over little ones in their lives who are seeking to, uh, to attend to however God is showing up or not showing up in their, in their life to attend to whatever uh, ways that faith is or is not structured in this season for them, right? Um, allowing for the new and, and releasing some of the old at times. And as they're seeking to do that, they're also seeking to care really well for little ones. Mm -hmm. 
or not so little ones, right? But to um, to parent, to nurture, to love well, and that can feel for some folks really overwhelming, right? Sometimes it's hard enough for to do in your own way, and then they're also now doing it with and for and alongside of these little ones in their care. Would you speak a word of encouragement and blessing to those folks? I'd love to. Although I feel like you also just did in the way that you saw and named, uh, right? We all love to be seen and named. And as you describe that situation, I think that is also a blessing, right? To hear someone Mm -hmm. say, yes, that is me. That is what I hold. So that would be first. May you hear, uh, may you hear these words before as knowing you are seen and not alone. The late Frederick Beekner said the grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. It doesn't always feel like a party, but perhaps the love of God and the grace of God is the very thing driving you to put down heavy burdens to let go of things that have shamed and brought sorrow and to move towards things that feel light and joyful. Maybe the party spaces are where you will most discover the divine. And so when you have your children with you, may you perhaps take inspiration from what Jesus chose to do when kids wanted to be nearby. To simply welcome, put arms around, and bless. When a voice tells you that's not enough, tell it to shut up. Welcome, put your arms around them, and bless them. Because you are showing them that the party wouldn't be complete without them either. So may we play in defiance of a faith that tells us that everything is hard and that we are awful. Instead, we are beloved and the party wouldn't be complete without you. Amen. Amen. Meredith, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for all that you brought to it, for being so willing to uh, attend to all of your own iterations of faith throughout, throughout your life that you would have what you need to be able to attend to this one, just as there will be another one that comes after it. So thank you for that work and the ways that that you're inviting us to learn from what, from what you have for your work to support parents and caregivers in the midst of this. It is no small thing. Thank you, friend. Thank you. It's been wonderful. If you've enjoyed conversations you've heard on In the Waves, you can purchase a copy of my book, God Is, wherever you get your books. You can also be part of our final episode where I will engage questions that listeners have about the book and the conversations that we've shared here. So submit your questions via email to inthewavespodcast at gmail.com and let's keep the conversation going. To stay up to date on my writing and events, be sure to visit my website, MalloryWyckoff.com, and subscribe to my newsletter. You can also follow me on social media at Mallory Wyckoff. This podcast was produced by the fabulous Mariah Keener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>